Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So, we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. All right, welcome back to another episode of SRG Offscript. I am excited to introduce a, I'll say a new guest for sure, but new guest in terms of new relationship for me, SRG, uh, and frankly, even new content. The stuff that we we talk a little bit about in the work that we do as succession planning consultants, because again, it's succession planning, it's mergers and acquisitions. The stuff we do is, I mean, it's all centered around exit planning. I mean, we certainly have worked to back up from the exit door over the years and help people earlier and earlier, but we lead people up to the exit door. And then in general, we're, I don't say we're done with them because that sounds far too transactional, but that is our body of expertise is getting them to that point. And I've got with me today, Jerome Myers, who is really good, certainly leading up to the exit door and planning for it, but from a very different perspective. Different lens than than we take. I refer to it sort of as the warm and fuzzy stuff that I hate, and so Jerome will help unpack that, give some background here. But he's also there on the back end after the transition. So, and I've got lots of anecdotal stories of encountering this subject matter just organically in the work we do with advisors, clients who are selling. But initially, Jerome, since you're still kind of new to me, would you mind a little background on you, the business, what you do, why you do it? Yeah, David, first of all, thanks for having me. And it's so grateful to be with you and your audience today. Um, yeah, so it was a Saturday in 1983 where I was born in Womack Army Hospital. I'm kidding. We won't go there. But what we will do is <laughs> talk about my exit from corporate America. So Back in 2015, I was tapped to build a division of a Fortune 550 company. I was employee number two. We had uh, $0 in revenue when I showed up. And by the end of the year, we did $20 million, uh, had $6 million in profit. Now, mm-hmm. on that journey, we grew up to about 175 employees. I get a phone call on December 24th at 4.55, and it goes something like this. Hey, Jerome, you know, great job this year. But I've come to a decision. Uh, we're going to lay half the team off. I was like, uh, I don't think that's the right answer. He's like, yeah, you and I have been going back and forth about this. And it's the right thing. We need to do this. And I'm calling to inform you that I made a decision, not negotiate with you. And David, I'm pretty stubborn. So I said, no, no that's not the right decision. We need to actually work through this. We're going to need these people. I got to do this again next year. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, yeah. I'm going to spend the rest of the year with my family. I'll talk to you in a new year. And he hung up the phone and I was like, this is awful, right? Like, why are right. we balancing the budget when we're so profitable? I, I didn't really get it. And so I spent between Christmas and New Year's figuring out who was going to stay and who was going to go because I wanted to make the process as objective as possible. Yep. And what I told myself is they made me do it. I'll never do this again. And so we Went through the process. We put Humpty Dumpty back together again next year. 
Thanksgiving and I'm having the same conversation, but it's a little bit different. Now I'm being preemptive because I'm a little skittish. I say, uh, hey, guys, don't spend all your money on Black Friday because I don't know what's going to happen between now and the end of the year. We know what happened last year. And I just felt all my leadership credibility oozing out on the floor in front of the room of those folks when I was saying that to them. And so I was like, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm out. And so I decided to leave corporate America, uh, left corporate, moved into real estate full time. And that was really just pulling a dream off a shelf in college. Me and my buddy were sitting on the stoop and we started doing math because that's what engineering students did in their free time. And I was paying three ninety five. He was paying three ninety five. And we both had two roommates doing the same thing. But when we multiplied it out across the complex. The guy was making about $700,000 a year, but we never saw him or talked to him. I was like, oh, this is fabulous. He's figured out how to decouple his time for money. And I didn't really get how he did it. I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. So we didn't have people with multi-million dollar real estate portfolios coming over to the house. And so I was like, well, how do I do this? And what I resigned was I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody to ask that was going to connect me with real estate investors. And so I would just go off, get a good job, get a credit score, get some money in the bank because that's what <laughs> you're supposed to do. And so here we are at the place where I did that and I'm walking out of corporate and it's like, oh, I'm just going to go buy an apartment because that's what I said I was going to do in college. And I go knock on the door about 10 banks and they all tell me no. And I say, why? And they said, well, you don't have any experience. And I said, I, of course I have experience. I got an MBA, I got an engineering degree. I got yeah. running a PL with $20 million. I should be able to do this. <laughs> like, well, you haven't done this before. And that's when it hit. You know, you got a bunch of skills and you think they're complementary. You can move them to different places, but people right. outside of the space that you're in usually don't value those things. And so they said, you need a partner, you need a guide, somebody who's been through this before to help you on this journey because what you're trying to do is pretty ambitious and the, they were right. Eventually we got the deal done and I won't go into all the details on that, but eventually we got the deal done and had the bank lent me the money by myself, I would have went bankrupt in that first project because I underestimated the construction and I didn't really understand what it was going to take in order to get the things done. And so Real estate became a very lonely venture. If people are watching a video, they'll see the wolf over my shoulder. And it reminds me of being the lone wolf. And I was like, man, what do I miss from the role that I had when I was in corporate? And the thing that I missed was people coming to me and saying, hey, Jerome, I don't know if I could have done that without you or something along the lines of you inspire me to do more or be more. And I was like, how can I get back to that coaching and developing piece? And turned out that I had been working with one client for a few years and it was just one client. He happened to be on financial advisor. That relationship went for about 10 years. And what I learned through that process was there's so much that you can help adults do if they're ready to invest in their personal development and they're being intentional about it. And so we're navigating that. We're working in financial services. We're working with business owners and we're helping them grow and scale their company. And then I realized something that I, I just, I didn't think many people, many people cared about it. And it was like, Oh, well, you know, you need to have a will if you're going to pass away so that people know it's going to happen. But nobody was talking about, well, what do you do with your business if you're ready to leave from your business? And I'm seeing more and more people get into the place where they're ready to retire or whatever that means. Right. And so we're going through that and I'm 
actually at a business conference and a guy is giving a presentation and I think he called it how to build a double unicorn, blah, 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 blah. Basically he sold a company for $2 billion and as president. <laughs> and now he's got all this money and he spent the last year trying to figure out what he was going to do. And during the presentation, he gets to a point and he says, um, and my wife let me know I was having an existential crisis. And she wanted me to go do something. She didn't care what it was, but I couldn't just sit on the couch anymore. And so at the end of the presentation, I said, hey, man, how'd you get out of your existential crisis? And he said, I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> and that just that that ripped my insides out because I was like, you have the time, you have the money, but you no longer have the purpose you had to be extremely talented to lead a group of people to a place where you built a company that big. And now you're right. just kind of out to pasture. And so we embarked on this journey to begin helping people that are in that big transition where it's almost like they won the lottery and now they have control over their time, but they don't know what to do next. And so the whole goal, the whole ambition is to help people figure out what their next is. Which is funny because, again, that's where I started this conversation and that we lead people up to that doorstep and then never really thought about it on the back end. But we've had over, I mean, I've been doing this now 20-something years. It doesn't happen every year, but every couple of years, mm -hmm. we end up encountering somebody who we've helped sell their business. To your point, they've They've had the exit event sort of reach that zenith of their career, mm -hmm. having spent 20 or 30 years building the business. It's a big part of who they are, their identity. And, and then they sell that identity. They sell that business and they get paid. And I, I will caveat this because you and I both said it before, like, granted, these are very, you know, first world problems, but they are problems nonetheless. And so we get them up to the exit door and assume that now they've been unshackled, you know, from running a business and all the joys, trials and tribulations that go along with that. And now they're just going to ride off into the sunset, have a merry life, you know, with their spouse, travel, do all the things they haven't been able to do for the last 20 years. And I suspect in some cases that might be true, but it's probably true for the first couple of months. Mm -hmm. And then you run out of things to go do, or at least, you know, the major things you've been putting off the last 20 years. And so needless to say, we've had a few of them come back and say like, hey, by the way, you know, it, it's been really tough for me, actually. And I'd love to start coaching people around this. And I thought, well, sounds kind of foo-foo-y. Like, maybe you just need to go like talk to a therapist or something. And then you and I connected. And you're like, no, I think this is actually something that a lot of people deal with. So can you talk more about sort of that exit process? Because to me, as I think about it, again, being the M&A consultant, that's the end. Like you've had the liquidity event, yeah. you're, you're now done. You have no more problems, right, Jerome? <laughs> yeah, and I think everybody does. And everybody listening to us who hasn't had the liquidity event wants to have the liquidity yeah. event to find out that right. we're wrong or right about what we're talking <laughs> about. But here's the thing. When you have the liquidity event, we, we call it the founder's exit paradox. You've got the freedom of your time, your talent, and your treasures. The problem, though, is we are wired to use our time, talent, and treasures in some meaningful way. And so while you can go backpacking through Europe or you can walk the Appalachian Trail or you can go play golf every day, there's going to come a point where that is boring. 
It's going to come a point where it's not fulfilling and you're going to be, if you've been a builder, you're going to want to build. You're going to want to create because that's what you've been and that's core to your identity. In the Founders Exit Paradox, we talk about the six centers of doubt. And so you, you come to this place and you're like, oh, now what? Because you had the structure, you, you walk into the sea of uncertainty and in that uncertainty, you, you're, you're, you're like, I've got all the freedom in the world, but there's no predictability. And for most people, that is extremely terrifying. Now you'll say, oh, well, you've got the money so you can do whatever you want. The problem with being able to do whatever you want is you don't know what to do. You don't have to pick anything. Your hand is right. enforced. And in that space, you don't want to make the wrong decision because you've had so much success in the past. Now, most people yeah. who are humble enough to admit that they've had failures will say, oh, well, the only reason I've been so successful is because I failed so much. Yeah, but you were build usually building on something that you'd already done. Now that you're out right. and you haven't actually spent time thinking about what you're going to do now. You're in this space and this place and you don't really have anything to cling on to. And so when we talk about the six centers of doubt with self image, well, your image was usually wrapped up in what you did, right? That's gone now. You know, I'm the founder or the owner of this company. I spend 60 hours a week doing whatever the thing is. You know, my, yeah. usually some families wrapped up in the business with these privately held things, right? And so they're participating in some way. And the next level, the relationships with the relationships, you think about it. You, the majority of the time that you spend is with the people you work with and the people that live in your house. Well, when you walk away from the job, most of the people that you spend the most time <laughs> with are gone. And yeah, it's great that you had an exit, but they didn't. And I, they probably don't want to talk to you while they're trying to figure out how to keep running the business that you left them in. So, you know, those dynamics change, but the things change at home too, right? Because you were gone 60 hours a week and now you're home 40 of those hours. <laughs> and the person who was used to having the, the kingdom to themselves now has an imposter or an intruder. They may not be excited about you being there or you, the way that you change. Uh, the way things are happening. I remember one guy right. talking about wanting to cook now that he was home. And she's like, no, 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 the kitchen is mine. And you better stay <laughs> out of it because I don't like, maybe I don't like the way you do it. Or I don't like the way it tastes, but whatever it was, she had her thing. And just because your thing changed didn't mean that her thing had to change, at least right in the beginning. And then the work piece, we're, we're built to work. We're built to make impact. We're built to influence. So this thought of moving to a space or a place where you don't do that, I just don't, it sounds good in concept when you're having some of those tough days. There's got to be a whole lot more days if you had success that were the days where you actually enjoyed what you were doing. And so right. the goal is to make sure that you have some meaningful work to do. Now, those first three when I really think about it, they are the creation of all the stress, right? Like if you think about all the problems that you have in your life, self-image, relationship, and work, you can probably drop them in one of those categories. I've talked to a lot of people about that, and I've been waiting for somebody to bring me a problem that didn't fit in one of those categories. So the next one is uh, health. And so a lot of folks put their health okay. on the back burner because they are in the process of building the thing. They don't have time for it or the food is easy 
or some other thing that they've used to rationalize it. They don't sleep well. They don't want to drink because there are meetings back to back and they don't have to go to the bathroom. Like you could go down the silver bullet of health of all the things. Their metabolism has slowed down because their work has been sedentary. You can kind of go down the list, but the people need to focus on their health. And so they're questioning whether or not they give up their health in order to create the wealth only to give the wealth to try to buy back the health. And so we work through that and help people come up with the plan so they can be in the best health of their life so that they can enjoy and age gracefully. And then the next one is prosperity. So it's funny you talked about travel. Like everybody talks about how they're going to travel when they get the money <laughs> and then they get the money and then they question whether or not they should spend the money. Right. Because you cut off an income stream in order for a lump sum. Right. And the worst thing that can happen when you, with your lump sum is that you spend it all. Running out of money is a real fear for most people. And for a lot of folks who don't have high cash flow businesses, they're used to not having a whole lot. So now they have all this money and they have to become a resource allocator. And that's a different skill set for them. Like when you're trying to figure out how not to spend money for the majority of business right. owners, and now you have all of this money, you're like, I could do anything I want. I could buy the Ferrari. I can buy the watch. I, I, I can buy the new house, but should I? Do I even deserve right. this? And, you know, those instances, those doubts creep in and people begin struggling with that newfound wealth. And then the last one is significance. Like the question of is your company being your legacy is one that I think troubles people. It's like, is that all I ever was? And I, I liken it to right. being uh, the varsity cheerleading co-captain or captain <laughs> or the high school football quarterback, right? Or you, There are always those people who are always talking about the good old days in high school. And a lot of people peaked then. And do you want to be the person who peaked in business, right? I sold my company. That was kind of the holy grail. That is all that I've contributed to society and I'm done. Or now that you have your time and you have resources from a capital standpoint, do you actually want to go out and make a difference on a problem that maybe other people haven't solved, but is very important to you in your journey? And so those six centers of doubt, just to wrap it back up, self-image, relationship, work, health, prosperity, and significance. People are navigating and negotiating those things to try to create a new life in this uncertain place that we call the founder's exit paradox. And are there things folks can do proactively to tackle this? Because I kind of imagine, I mean, being a fellow business owner, you know, with you talking to business owners all the time, I, I was intrigued when you brought this up and when I listened to some of your podcasts in advance of this, but I, I suspect it's not something that's probably on most people's radar. And I would tell you selfishly in the work that we do, helping people with succession planning and hopefully just create sustainable businesses. I mean, you heard me say it before that, that to me is the other side of the same coin with succession planning, but I got to think the things you're talking about play some small or major part in the bottleneck that I see, certainly with financial advisors in the utter lack of succession planning. I mean, people eating their own cooking, they literally plan, help people plan for retirement yeah. every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But then you sit down and look at themselves and it's not that they fail to plan because they, they are planning, they're saving yeah. most of them getting value out of the business it's kind of the cherry on top. Like they don't need it to retire. They'll certainly enjoy it and they've worked hard for it. But I suspect the amount of times that I hear, I love what I do and I'm going to die at my desk. 
I'm guessing it might actually be something else as the underlying symptom causing mm -hmm. that reaction. Your thoughts, I mean, can you deal with this stuff proactively? Is it a blind spot for most owners? I, I think they're turning their back to it. I don't think it's a blind spot. And yeah, no. I don't think it's a badge of honor to say that you're going to die at your desk. In fact, I think it's sad. And, you know, that may I offend some people, but the fact of the matter <laughs> is like, sitting at your desk and doing meetings probably isn't your greatest contribution to society, right? So why do so many financial advisors take that approach? Well, they knew how hard it was when they started the business. And then they build up a really nice recurring revenue business right. where they don't have to work that hard in the end. And so they say, well, why would I ever leave this? And I think of a lot of reasons why you would leave it. One, there's people behind you who are looking for the opportunity to serve those clients that you are serving and it's air quotes around serving because you probably aren't serving them that well because you don't actually really want to deal with them. Um, the other thing is most of those cases, you've seen them before, so they're not all that interesting. And so you're not actually being stimulated to do what needs to be done at a high level, right? You're just kind of going through the motions. And so, but it's easy, right? And so it's like, oh, I'm I'm getting rewarded for the dues I paid in the past. Well, yeah, kinda. I, at the end of the day, if you don't have a challenge, if you're not doing something difficult or stimulating, you're going to fatigue and you're going to atrophy. And then you're going to end up in a space where your value is going to be minimized. And what I, the, the best way that I've heard this described, David, is, um, if you have a large breed dog and, they have energy and you do not take them out for a walk or throw the ball or play tug with them. They are going to go put that energy somewhere. And a lot of times what they do is they go dig holes. And so they'll dig a hole in your backyard just because they need somewhere to put the energy and you aren't doing something to stimulate that. And that's what we do as humans. We will go dig holes so that we find ourselves useful. So if you're in your practice and you're going to find problems in the practice that may or may not exist, or you're going to create problems so that you can solve the problem, you're doing a disservice to the people <laughs> on your team, as well as the clients that you have. And I personally believe that there are enough problems in the world and each one of us is put here to solve a specific problem. And so if we can actually move out of space of doing what is comfortable and what we believe is easy into a space of challenge, we can actually make a big difference. And the other piece of this, one that I think is probably the biggest travesty is if the advisor or the business owner in general does not actually do the exit, they will miss the biggest financial liquidity event of their life. Right. Right. They worked all this time only to leave the money on the table. And I just think that's a disaster for all the people who sacrifice for you to build the thing. Right. Well, that, that's where it's really hard to watch this stuff when they've spent time, energy, I mean, years sometimes mentoring and training and getting the next generation ready. And then for whatever reason, I suspect some of it may have to do with their lack of post business life planning. They, did, they don't get out of the way. And I don't want to be derogatory in a sense, because I mean, they certainly have paid their dues, earned their stripes, and have a ton to contribute, even when they're 65 and 70, I'm sure. But at some point, I mean, when you get to be 65 or 70, and you're in there for the first hour or two in the office, you know, banging away on the keyboard, and then the assistant comes in and turns the computer on, like, 
the problem is that is a blind spot and you won't know that you maybe overstayed your welcome until you're well past that point and can look back on it and until you know you've peaked. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge we see then is it, that is an impetus for a lot of the other small businesses and advisors starting up because they spend 10 years mentoring and training this amazing junior team. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves as the junior team or the B team. I mean, maybe at first, but right. over time, when you go from working five, sometimes six days a week as the owner, founder, mentoring and training, leading the organization, the strategy, I mean, you are amazing to that team. And then you mentored and trained and you can take your foot off the gas just a little bit. Yeah. And you take Fridays off because you have earned it. Yeah. And team picks up the slack, firm keeps growing. Having Fridays off is great. Three-day weekends are fantastic, but you know what's better than a three-day weekend? A four-day weekend. So they take Mondays off because nobody likes Mondays anyway. Yeah. So they take Mondays off and quickly realize just like a holiday on a Monday, that just turns Tuesday into a Monday. And so they take a half day on Tuesday to ease into the work week, which now consists of Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah. And so then you start looking at the team who's still pushing the rock up the hill, only you're now there part-time, yeah. still thinking you're contributing, and you probably are. But as you stay the owner and the founder and that big personality and identity, mm -hmm. you are the business in many cases, especially to the clients until you're not. Basically, they end up training some very competent, capable competitors because because they won't get out of the way. They won't share the equity. And I don't think that necessarily always comes from the team not being ready or they can't afford it or any number of other excuses and instead, the folks end up leaving, and you end up with these folks who die at their desk for lack of a plan B now. And so I just, I think if they had a little bit more, I don't know if it's emotional intelligence, if it's you know, the change management. I tell you, I freaking hated change management. <laughs> I know you went through your MBA too. Like yeah, yeah. I sat through that stuff. I thought, oh God, you're never going to use this stuff. And then you, you, you start do. actually like living in business. You're like, shit. There's change management everywhere. Every day. I really should have paid attention. I go get the textbook off the shelf. Yeah. And, and so I, I suspect, I mean, you know, good change, bad change, we're all resistant to it. And so how in the hell do you actually help people tackle this subject? Is it something they tackle after the liquidity event and you're I coming in rescuing? Are they proactive about this stuff? Yeah. Like, what do you do? How do you solve yeah. this problem? It's, it's really interesting. So we could talk about what happens more often than not. Then we could talk about yeah. what the smart way to do it from my perspective <laughs> is. And so what happens more often than not is the person exits and then they go through the honeymoon phase for the six months. And like, let's say that they were asked to be senior vice president or president of the division that they sold to something else, right? Okay. They didn't just sell it to somebody else. They, they got an employment agreement on the backside of it. So now they've gone from founder owner to employee and about Three months, they're like, oh, yeah, this is cool. They're sending me this check and I don't have to do anything. And I got all this money in the bank. And then about the fourth month, they're like, oh, they sold me a bag of goods. This is <laughs> not what I thought it was going to be. They realize how little influence they have. They realize that they aren't the employee. decision maker anymore. It yeah. is. And so they can deal with it for a month. And then six months in, they're like, this is the worst decision. This is purgatory. I should have never done this. And then they start trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? And some people leave money on the table because there's usually an earnout tied to that type of deal. Right. And they're like, I, it, no amount of money is worth me dealing with this. And so they leave money on the table in that space, though. So then they go to the nothing 
right? So now I'm out and I got my money and they're mad at the people who told them about the thing that they thought was going to be great that wasn't actually great. And they didn't have a plan because they knew they thought they were going to be doing that thing for the next two years. Now they're like, I don't know what to do. And so what we believe in is exiting the excellence. And so we want people to have a vision of what post-exit looks like. And it's not all of the trinkets and the trophies. It's the meaningful work that you're going to do. You know, what What does a work day look like? Is it three hours a day? Is it eight hours a day? Most people don't want to continue the 60-hour weeks. And so there's an adjustment to it. And then what are the activities that you're actually going to do in it? And so we help people, one, get clarity on that vision. Right. And we call it next. Right. So we, we nourish who they are. We start with nourishing who they are and how where they've gone, because a lot of times you get to the end of the road and you're drained. It's kind of like running a marathon. Right. You you want to carb low. You want to get back in pretty good, <laughs> feeling good about yourself. But you did something really hard. And so you need to celebrate that. So we nourish. And then we evaluate all the skill yeah. sets that are there. Right. The things that are multidisciplinary, cross-functional, we want to understand the resources that are available to them. And then from there, we want to explore. So what could you possibly do? Right. We could do anything, but based on the things that we have, what makes sense? And it's not applying it against the same problem that you've been working with, but there's some probably some things that you've experienced over the course of your life where you saw that there was a gap. There wasn't somebody working on it or there was something that you experienced that you don't ever want anybody else to experience. And when you look at your skill sets, you've been uniquely prepared in order to make that problem or issue go away. And so we begin exploring the different avenues. And then the last step is to transcend. And so we embark on the journey to execute against the strategy that we created when the people were exploring. So you identify the target and then in transcendence, you move to that new place of actually executing against it. And we, we call it helping you find your next. And in that process, we come up with a detailed roadmap after getting this complete inventory of the things that are available to you. And then one or two things, you can go do it by yourself you could go do it with somebody else or we can help you do it, but we give you the North star and we don't try to be exactly correct on the most specific problem, but what we want to be is directionally correct. And so we kind of know that this is a thing with a really good track record of success on the it being the thing, but we, we want to give people that leeway so they don't feel like they're so locked in that they can't do an adjustment or a tweak along the way. When when somebody start working on a topic like this mm-hmm. with you, I mean, is it six months before they anticipate having the exit event? Is it twelve months, twelve years? Like so how much lead time? It's it's my belief that the when you start doing your succession planning, you should be planning your new thing. And okay. it's if you don't do that, your identity is going to be so wrapped up in what you're doing, 
it's going to, you're going to have a hard time to detach. And so the other way that we think about it, and we, we talk about the eight exits of a founder. Most people only think about exit six, which is when you actually sell the business to somebody else. But there are. St- that's exit six. I'd call that's it exit one. No, that's, that's exit six. six. That's exit six. All right, six. let's unpack this. <laughs> um, and seven and eight are the ones that we really get excited about. So six is getting the, the big payday. We call it pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And then yeah. seven is in between six and seven, you're building a portfolio, things that are going to send you income, cash, right? Because right. when you take the check, you don't get the cash anymore. You got this check and then you need to figure out how to make the check grow. And so allocating resources to different investments. Some people just put in S&P 500, which I guess is okay. But if you're a builder, if you're an entrepreneur, you probably want to own companies. And so helping them allocate and pick those and some venture and so on and so forth. And then the last one is kind of the pinnacle. Not a whole lot of people make it here, but I think it's the one that's most exciting is when you set up the endowed foundation that carries out the work that you believe should be done. And it makes it so that your people who are doing the work don't have to run around um, begging and pleading for people to donate to the charity so that the charity can do the work that is supposed to be done. So that's the back end, but the front end, I think my path is one that kind of lays this out. So people leave being an employee. Most of the time it's dropping out of corporate America to start doing their thing. When they do that, they become chief everything officer. It is not jets. It's not exotic cars and it's not big houses in the beginning. It's you do everything. If you go to the file cabinet and you didn't put paper in the file cabinet, or put it in the printer. There is no paper in the printer. You are making the staples runs. You are going to Walmart or Target. You are figuring out where the pens and pencils go. I mean, and you're emptying out the trash as well. So, you know, people go into that space and this is why most people don't want to start something new. They don't want to go back to chief everything officer and the grind that that is. Right. And, you know, you trade your nine to five when you have a job for five to nine, you're up early and you're working late and you're missing probably more of the things than you were missing when you had a job, but you believe in something and you push right. in the rock up the hill. Then you go to exit three where you've got some people that you're managing now. And so some things can happen without you doing them, but you're still responsible for all the work that's happening. And so you you got some helpers. Then we go to exit four, which is having a manager in place that manages your people. And maybe there's different departments, but you're managing managers versus managing the production workers. Um, Got it. So giving, giving up some control. Giving up the control. And while you're doing that, you're also beginning to do some thought leadership. Right. And so you're out in industry. You might be speaking on stages. You might be on podcasts or writing articles, but you're doing something to differentiate the product, your product or your service from your competitors. And you have the capacity to do that because other people are doing the work and other people are managing the work. Then there comes a point where you put somebody in place to run the business. Right. And you truly become a, a chief executive officer. And that for me is truly the magic because the business can run by itself. And you describe this really well. You're like, Hey, I'm going to three day weekends and now I'm going to four day weekends. And then I'm just kind of easing them. You're not in the space or the place where you have to be there in order for things to happen. Now, when you get here, I think it's important 
that you have somebody who can actually run it. And so I think an operating officer is really important there. And, you know, this part kind of, it goes in, in two stages. And so you, you got the person that can run the business for you. You might eventually make them the chief executive officer and then move to chairman of the board if you put a board in place. But this is where you start to detach. And so your question, David, when should people start working on this? It's when you start detaching from the day-to-day operations. And so the more, the, as soon as you say, Hey, I got the right people in place. I can, I don't have to be here every day and I don't have to guard my desk to set the example for what people need to do in order to be successful here. Then you need to start thinking about, well, what am I going to do next? Because this works without me. And when you get to, you talked about sustainable businesses and this is exactly what it is. Right. Sustainable business works, whether you're there or not. And so when you have a sustainable business, then you need to be be thinking about your next, because if you don't, you will do everything you can in order to make sure that the business needs you. Right. One thing that kind of hit me in the chest, because I was like, oh, as a business owner, I'm the most valuable asset to my company. And then I thought to my and then somebody said, the more valuable you are to your business, the less valuable your business is. I was like, oh, 100 percent. Uh oh. And so I got to figure out how to make myself insignificant. Well, and there's no reason to make yourself insignificant if you don't have something else to go do, right? Because the business is what you're significant at. And so the the exact place that you want to do this is when you're chief executive officer, you've got your number two in place and they can be the person that you believe can take over the company and make it run without you being there. And you can start to detach because this is, that's the hardest part. You, you have to have something that's exciting for you to have the incentive to detach from what is consumed so much of your life. Because that those first four or five exits that we talked about can be anywhere from 15 to 30 years, depending on how efficient you are and the trends happening in your industry. Well, and you touch on that sort of CEO transition or exiting the chief everything officer and getting into a more focused, narrowly defined role. And I mean, I tell folks, and there's nothing we consult on. It's just an observation I've had. And I mean, A, living it, and B, working with folks who have left being an employee somewhere, let's say as an advisor, because that's our target demographic. They leave being an employee advisor. They go start their own independent firm and quickly realize like, yeah, printer's empty. I fill it, phone rings. No one's answering. Oh, shoot. That's my guy. Answer the phone. Like, I got to do everything. And eventually, they get enough clients and move the clients over and not can afford to hire somebody mm-hmm. to fill the paper up and answer the phone. And so gradually, they do start to narrow these roles, but they still end up in most cases being the star of the business. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say hiding behind the client service and prospecting, but kind of hiding behind it. I mean, just like I have done over the years as a business owner, it's what I'm good at. It's what I've got. 10, 20 years of experience doing, you know what I don't have any formal training doing is being a CEO. And so we kind of end up avoiding that transition. But man, once you're on the other side of it, as rough a transition as it is likely to be for most people, Uh you look back on it and think, I was almost doing my clients a disservice by not making this logical next step in the evolution of the business. Because when I'm chief everything officer, and you know, people will be listening to this thinking like, well, I'm not the chief everything officer. I got people who do things. If you are sitting in on client meetings, that is not the highest and best use of your time because you are being a part-time leader. You are being a part-time client service person. You are being part-time operations person. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the jack of all trades, master of none, like 
as you get over that hump and you become the CEO and you're out of the client service or predominantly out of the client service, you know what you end up having to do to make sure you can still meet your firm's obligations. If you hire people and you train them and all they do all day long, every week of the year, 52 weeks a year, take great care of the clients and executing your client experience. You were not doing that full time. And so as soon as you start uncoupling and looking back on it and thinking, well, now I see why like my team is doing so much better with this stuff than I was. Well, yeah, because you had 15 other things pulling at you. So for me, I mean, yeah, the exit is certainly the most important thing for succession resource group, but up to that point of exiting, it's that CEO transition. And I think that's, that's a really hard transition. Even if you see it coming, I think a lot of people end up avoiding it because we, we collectively as business owners, there's no like you do your undergrad and then you do your MBA and then you start a business and then you go back to school to be a CEO. Like as glorious as that might be to get some formal training on it, I don't think it really exists. It's the school of hard knocks. Like, I mean, you're a business owner, you've dealt with this and you work with business owners. Any suggestions? I mean, how do people get over that hump? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So each new level is going to require a new version of you. And so each exit requires you to go through it. Now, being excited about going through to that next phase, it varies depending on what the person's doing. Some people just like the chaos. They like the rigor <laughs> of it all. And if that's you, God bless you, right? You right. you can enjoy that. But I think everybody who actually goes through the struggle that you just described actually enjoys the next level better. There's a different set of problems, there's a different set of challenges, but at the end of the day, they enjoy those more than the ones that the person has. Now, what I would say to the person who says, oh, I love this, is is that true or is that your ego? <laughs> and if it's your ego, and you'll know if it's your ego because you feel some stuff in your core. It, it, there might be a little bit of animosity. There's like, well, who are you? Right. If you're feeling any of that, then you know it's your ego and you probably want to spend some time with that because if you actually want to help other people know that there are other people out there that can do one of the jobs that you're doing better than you are doing all of the jobs that you're doing. The ability to be a specialist at something allows you to do it with greater care, with more intention and deliver a better experience to the people that you're working with than a person who's just kind of doing everything and kind of halfway paying attention. Right. That intentionality on the backside is from my perspective, the magic. And for anybody out there who hasn't tried it or who has had bad hires, because I think every business owner has had bad hires know that it was probably that you didn't hire the right person, not because that they couldn't do it or there isn't anybody who can do it better than you. And it was funny that right. you said that people use the excuse of they can't afford it. You can't afford not to. Right. If you want to actually maximize your exit, you can't afford not to. Yeah. I mean, that's an easy math problem in most cases for me, when you start looking at, all right, use the financial advisor case. So, and sorry, folks listening, if you've listened to the other podcasts, I have mentioned this before, but it bears repeating because it, it is such a simple math problem that if you are seeing clients and that is eating up your time, and maybe it's eating it up, maybe you love doing it, you volunteer for it, but either way, you spend time doing it. If you picked up the phone 
You start answering the phone because your receptionist is out. Your team's going to look at you like you're crazy. That's and a job that we can get well. somebody. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. A client walks in and say, "Hold on, let me answer the phone real quick." Like that's. It's not that it's you know below you. It's just that that's a, like a twenty dollar an hour job, forty thousand dollars a year. Like, don't answer the phone. You can just spend your time doing more productive things than that. The same thing holds true for the client service work. And I'll have people challenge me like, well, yeah, but like to get somebody to service my A clients, my VIP clients, nobody could do for my clients what I do. Well, newsflash, your clients probably have another advisor anyway. So somebody else is already doing what you do, maybe not as well. And to be fair, when you hand that ball off to your team, like, yeah, they're not going to do as well as you have done. You have a 20-year runway on them. But you have a 20-year runway of doing that client service work part-time. It won't take them long before they can catch up to you with your intentional mentorship and tutelage. And point being on the math problem is to get somebody capable of doing that, shoot, I don't care what your market is. It might cost you $300,000 a year as a salary to go get somebody to come in. And after 12 or 18 months of like intentional mentorship and tutelage of working side-by-side and job shadowing, for them to deliver that same client experience, answer the same client questions the way you would. But at 300000 a year, like, it sounds like a lot. And it is if your firm is doing like three or 400000 a year in revenue. I get it. But if you're doing a million, two million and up, like that's like $150 an hour. So I put it back to most of the owners in these audiences. Like, is there not something else you could be doing in the business that would generate more than $150 worth of value? Let's call it 160 with benefits. Like, and if the answer is no, then yeah, keep seeing the clients. Right. But you and I both know the answer is yes. 100%. And if it isn't, it should be and it will be. And it, that's the uncomfortable transition that I, I have lived through and that I see people go through. And it is it is uncoupling from the client service work because it's easy. I don't have to prepare for it. I just show up. I do it. I hit it out of the park. It's a home run every single time. Like, mm-hmm. And I don't have to think about it. And then I transitioned to this CEO role and I'm left looking around thinking like, okay, so yeah. I took David or Jerome's advice and I made this transition. I pay somebody 300,000 a year. What exactly does a CEO do full time? (laughs) But it's not long before your calendar starts to get filled back up. It's just filled back up with more productive activities. It's marketing, it's mentorship, it's leadership in the organization. Like all of a sudden you're looking back on it to your point thinking, how was I not doing this full time? And that's pretty cool to see, but it's uh, there's an uncomfortable transition period. I don't know how long it is for most people, but it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, and I think it, it's really uncomfortable if you're going through it by yourself or you don't have anybody by your Fair. side to help you make the transition and challenge some of the things that you believe to be facts. We don't ever question anything we know to be true, even if it's not true, but we know for it to be true. We don't ever question it. And so having somebody right. on your team who is there to help you question those things that you believe to be true and encourage you to run some experiments. Uh, it makes a world of difference. And, you know, I know nobody needs help and everybody's got it all figured out, but I can tell Especially you entrepreneurs. Yeah. We're the worst. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you from personal experience that every time that I've made an investment in somebody being a consultant, coach, some type of strategist, I've been able to glean something from it, even if it wasn't what I originally signed up to get from them. Yeah. So what uh, you mentioned this term earlier, sort of the honeymoon period, like after they have that exit event, there's the sort of honeymoon period. How long is it for most people? I feel like most people think it's going to be longer than it probably really is. And I would tell you, you know, 
I have my predicted honeymoon period, and I feel like it's going to be a couple of years. It won't. <laughs> what is it in reality? I mean, I've folks? never actually heard anybody say that it's been more than nine months. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. It's usually in the- Do they just need more hobbies? Well, I don't, most people that I, I talk to don't actually have many hobbies, right? They yeah. might like driving it's cars business. or hitting a golf ball or they'll say travel, but I mean, how, how many fine dining establishments are you going to go to? Or how many resorts are you going to go to? I was talking to one lady and she was like, yeah, I- moved to the Turks and Caicos and I used to go diving every day and I was like, okay. And then she was like, I was on the beach one day and I just realized that I wasn't happy. I was miserable and I wanted to go build something and I missed it. And she went on and on about how much work she had to do in order to get herself back to a place where she felt like she was back in, in being centered and actually contributing in a way that made her proud of herself which I think is what this all boils down to because you had such high standards on your journey. You you had to do a lot of things to make yourself proud. And then you get to this place and you're like, well, I don't have to do that anymore. Nobody's watching and nobody's counting on me or relying on me to do anything. And right. I, I used to go do all this stuff for money. I don't have to go do stuff for money anymore. But the thing that still exists is the question of if you're proud of yourself, because if you're proud of yourself, you will feel worthy. If you're proud of yourself, you will be able to go out there and feel like you deserve it. But for the folks that aren't proud of themselves, they are not going to feel those things. In fact, they're going to be ashamed of themselves. And some people become hermits as a result of it. They don't want to be out in the space because they don't feel like they can look themselves in a mirror or talk about any of their achievements or accomplishments. This seems like a relatively... I don't say sensitive subject, but kind of sensitive. I mean, it's, it is, it's, a, there are a lot of emotions involved and mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but you know, anybody who says that is about to say something anyway. So I hate to say it, but you think about our financial services industry in particular and the demographics are certainly changing, yeah. but I'll call a spade a spade. Like most of our clients right now are old white males and I, they're maybe not the most in touch with their emotions. So as a stereotype. And so I feel like these are, these are very emotional issues. Like the business is the baby and now we've sold our baby and given it up. And so like we've seen over the years where most folks used to sell and then they would transition the clients in 12, 18 months faster than most people expected. And then they exited and the clients were all happy. Now we've got a lot of folks who are doing this, like kind of sell and stay buy and hire, like the seller's there for two or three years afterwards, or at least that's the plan. And again, I think a lot of this goes back to they honestly they can't let go, but they don't want to let go. They don't have anything else to go to. Right. That's what it is, right? I'm going to stay. So yeah. Yeah, we're we're not emotions, so we'll we'll just stay at rest. And I don't think yeah. that they're not in touch with their emotions. I just think they won't express their emotions. Because yeah, you okay. you gave the disclaimer earlier. These are first world problems, right? But at the end of the day, you Feel what you feel and yeah. it sucks. It being lost, being and feeling empty, feeling worthless, like that sucks regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how much time you have. And I don't believe any human being should suffer through that. And you're like, Oh, well, just send them to a psychologist. Right. They don't have a diagnosis. 
They don't need to go to counseling or therapy. There isn't anything wrong other than the fact that they sold the company and they don't know what's next. As soon as they know what's next, they get back on the horse and they start going and they ride it. Cause I mean, they, they know how to build that stuff transferable, but you know, being willing. And the other reason why they don't talk about it is because they feel like they're the only one. Or they feel like somebody's going to say they're ungrateful for the situation that they're, you're, oh, you're so fortunate. And, and you go talk to your buddy who right. is going to continue to be working for the next 10 years because they have a job. And you're like, oh, man, you got it all figured out. And then you feel like you got to keep up this facade. But deep down inside, you're right. like, oh, this is all messed up. Like, uh, I shouldn't do it. And I was listening to an interview. And I don't know if it's true or not, but they're like, the most depressed person after the Olympics is the person that won the gold medal. The second most depressed person is the one that won the silver medal. The person who's happiest is the person that won the bronze medal because they got there and they knew they weren't as fast as the gold medal person when they got there. They just wanted to be able to say they got a medal. And so, you know, you hit it big. You do something that so few people do because, I mean, I feel like it's like 70 or 80 percent of businesses don't actually sell. And right. on top of, but when you add on, you go to this other piece of the paradigm, Wells Fargo reported that 75% of business owners regret selling their business. And so it's hmm. like, you're in rare air to be the person who sold the business and then right. actually enjoys post exit life. Which it, you just assume is sort of an automatic thing. Like, well, I'll sell. And when I sell, then I'll finally be able to relax, let my hair down, buy that Harley and grow the ponytail and take off across the country. Like it's the glory days. And as I have heard now from clients, and then you brought it up, which is why I'm like, oh, well, maybe it, this isn't like this really unique sample set of a few clients here and there that are popping up saying like, this was really hard, much harder than I anticipated. I want to come coach to it. I'm like, get out of here. Nobody has these problems. And you're like, well, everybody has these problems to some degree. We just don't necessarily acknowledge it. So if someone wanted to get started just, unpacking this gradually. I mean, is there, you've got a podcast. I imagine you talk about this stuff. Is there a blog? Like how do people start tap dancing on the edges of this subject and get comfortable with it? Yeah. So we just released our book, um, your next, a guide to thriving post exit. And so they can pick that up. In fact, we'll drop a link and they can get, probably get the ebook for free or a digital version for free. But if they want a hard copy, we can probably get that to them for free plus shipping. And so the goal here is just to raise awareness about this being an issue. But that book just walks through the next process and gives them kind of a step by step on what they can be doing, whether they're exited or thinking about exiting so that they can be prepared for it. At the end of the day, there's always going to be a drop, right? You, you hit the peak there. You got to go down the mountain, but we want to help people find that second mountain so they can begin the new climb because that is what's going to make them feel alive. That's what's going to give them purpose. And that's, what's going to help them drive to that new place and be the positive contributor to society that I think we all dream and desire of being. Yeah. I mean, the audience we're talking to are entrepreneurs. We are achievers. So we need that next mountain. Conquer that mountain. We need another mountain. And so I love that analogy. So what, what is the podcast? I know you got a couple mm-hmm. of podcasts. If people wanted to come start listening yeah. and learning about this subject, where do they find you? Yeah. So the Dreamcatchers podcast tells a story okay. of people who caught their dream. 
right? And we go through their exits and we go through what happened post-exit. And we really try to dive deep on the founder's exit paradox, what it felt like, when it showed up, why it showed up, and then what people did to get out of it. And usually what we find, I think there isn't a... There's probably only one instance where this wasn't the case, and it was because the guy was an M&A advisor before he sold a business of his own, was that people always went back to the that issue, that problem that they didn't want anybody else to experience when they sold the business and then they had the resources, being the time, talent, and treasures on the backside of the exit to apply against that problem. And that was what always brings them out because they have meaning, they have worth they have purpose again and so we just help people get ideas get them exposed to some of the vernacular that we use because we know it's a little bit different and want them to have a language to begin talking about it and then normalize the conversation because it's not just for the founder it's also for the people around the founder because it's great that becky sold her company but if Becky's husband has no idea what she's going to experience on the backside of it, how could he possibly support her? And if he doesn't understand why she feels the way she feels, how is he going to be able to deal with some of the collateral damage that comes from the exit? Um, and it's our goal to make sure that people don't destroy the stuff that they built for so long outside of the company as a result of selling the company because it can be awful. Well, and in preparation, just to get up to speed on sort of your background, I've had a chance to listen to some of those podcasts. These are not, I want to say not just, these are not financial advisors exclusively Mm -hmm. that you're interviewing and talking to. So I think it's also a great angle for the advisors listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good additional perspective for you and your respective businesses because, I mean, it's the one thing we all at least have in common is we're leaving this industry at some point, horizontally or vertically, it's coming. So it's good for us to hear that perspective from other folks. Also, as an advisor, you work likely with a lot of small business owners right. who will someday hopefully have an exit event with your guidance and support. And so they're also likely facing these things. So it's just nice to be the smartest person in the room. So 100%. as a business owner, a business owner dealing with other business owners, I think this is an invaluable podcast to listen to as I've had a chance to listen to it. And I'm, you know, exit events far off for me, but I still think it's really interesting to hear the perspectives and just things I would have never expected. Uh, also, if you are industry folks listening to this, broker dealers, custodians, TAMPs, Jerome's got to be on the stage soon. And I say that from the perspective of we can't do our work with succession planning and mergers and acquisitions, which at the end of the day is how we help these firms continue to grow and be sustainable. It's how we get the you know old advisor who's gotten it to a certain point and had a ton of success, how we get them out of the way and supercharge it with the next generation. We can't do that work until we have two people on the dance floor at the very least. And the topics that you cover, Jerome, will help get people more comfortable mm-hmm. engaging in those conversations. And so I want you to be sort of the Tony Robbins of the financial services industry and mergers and acquisitions, because selfishly, it'll help get more people on our doorstep. It'll help these firms grow faster, longer. So anyway, if you're listening, Jerome, how do people reach out to you? How do they find you? Yeah, the best place to go is jeromemyers.co. There you'll cool. be able to get all of the goodies. Um, okay. And we've probably, 
Actually, I want to send them somewhere else, David, if that's okay. Let's send them Please. to the exitparadox.com. The exitparadox.com. And we're just going to dive in on all of the great things that we've talked about today. And then there'll be access to the podcast and a lot of the other free resources we have. We got this really cool 36 uh, page white paper where we just dive into strictly the founders exit paradox and give people the coping tools that they can use in order to work themselves out of it if they want to do it alone. And then of course we got the book coming and that'll be available to folks um, when when this airs. All right. Well, you better get the audiobook recorded as well. Cause you know, I, I like listening to my audiobooks. books. Well, so. The runs, man. How long, how far did you run today? Oh, <laughs> uh, I cheaped out today. My youngest was up all night. I don't know what he was doing, but he was not asleep. I can tell you that much. Uh, and so I ended up, sleeping in until five and then didn't have time with making lunches and everything else. So long way of saying I only got my four miles in only uh, four. So only slept until five and I only got four ladies and gentlemen, you better get your yeah. health together. David's going to that. With you. <laughs> <laughs> These are the things that, you know, as, as a business owner, it's nice to show up and have already accomplished something. So no matter how the day goes, yeah. I've already done something challenging. So, and then everything else is hopefully gravy. <laughs> do hard things. That's right. All right. Well, folks, uh, appreciate you carving out time to listen to Jerome and I chop it up and talk shop. Uh, pleasure as always, Jerome. Really enjoyed the insights. Again, frankly, I would say in an area that's been kind of a blind spot for me. I don't, I don't love dealing with emotions and these are emotional issues we deal with as business owners. So I'm going to put it off as long as I can, but I'll call you someday, Jerome. Well, send them to me and we'll figure it out. <laughs> but I promise you it's not squishy. We, we've got, I'm an engineer by training, right? So it, oh, it's all evidence-based. <laughs> it's all, it's all factual. And the emotions are there. You, you have to walk through the emotions to do the other stuff because strong emotions will always prevail over logic. All right. Well, the next time you're on the main stage, let me know. I'm going to be in the front row clapping for you. I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar. SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.